Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is a puka? Might you find fairies in your garden? Really? Could terms like changeling reflect some deep experience of our ancestors that our modern paradigm can't really grasp? Hello and welcome to the 703rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on ON1240 Radio celebrating 70 years of broadcasting in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. I am Ben and those earthy questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal and father, Paul. Uh, and today we bring you a guest on a subject that always creates a lot of excitement among our listeners. And uh, we won't be talking won't be talking calls. Well, we better talk. We, we will talk about calls, but there will be no calls today. Uh, but um, you can also email us if you want to get your questions into us. the The way to do that is Paul at behindtheparanormal.com for those. Well, before we introduce today's guest, we'd like to welcome our guest co-host to her debut on the show. Laurie Greer is our casting producer, and she's usually working hard in the background, booking our guests. But she's also a practicing behavioral scientist who will join us on shows where the subject is of special interest to her or her expertise can be applied. So, Laurie, welcome to the show. Uh, you with us? Hmm. Well, right. I guess not. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, we'll try to get her back. But, uh, I hope our guest is with us. Uh, today's guest is Vala Ventura, author of Banshees, Werewolves, Vampires, and Other Creatures of the Night, uh, Among the Mermaids, the book of the Bazaar and Beyond Bazaar, and the book that highlights the subjects of today's show, Fairies, Pukas, and Changelings, A Complete Guide to the Wicked and Wild Enchanted Realm which was released in April. According to her official bio, Bavala can often be found lurking about the deep, quote, this is a quote, can often be found lurking about the deep, dark woods and lakes of Minnesota on the hunt for beastly things, magical herbs, and the elusive little men of legend, unquote. Uh, Vala's website is valaventura.net, V-A-R-L-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-A dot net. Vala Ventura, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hmm. We don't have Varla either? Wait a minute here. Well, something seems to be afoot. So yes, please indeed. continue while we investigate. Okay, well, obviously we've been um, hijacked by the fairies here or something. Uh, I think that we've got... Um, do we have Lori with us? No, we do not. We don't. Isn't that weird? Well, hmm. Plan B. Uh, one of the things that, we're, that interests us in this subject is the listener's interest in the subject, and that is the subject of fairies. Now, Ben has pointed out that the word fairy very often um, just invites disbelief, and uh, I, th- I tend to agree with that. So uh, we may be dealing, however, with something that um, is in our human folklore for a reason. Do we have anybody with us? Now, Varla, are you with us? I'm with you. Oh, there we go. There we go. Yay. <laughs> right. Hello. Yay. Okay. Yes. Yeah, technical difficulties. I think fairies are afoot, yes. <laughs> do, yeah, really. Do we have our guest co-host? Uh, we do not, but okay. uh, if she's listening, we do ask her to give her Just give us her. a call, call back. Okay, anyway. So, Viola, we gave you a glowing introduction, which you probably did not hear, but um, uh, I'll start with... Que- ben is going to try to get our guest co-host back, and uh, I will start with his questions. Um, please tell us that pukas are not six-foot rabbits. Actually, I did hear your lovely introduction. Oh, you did? Okay, good. Um, so much the better. Had, yes, um, but Kat had, had gotten the, 
the better of the of the tongue here. Um, yes, actually, a a puka can be seen in the form of a six foot rabbit. I'm sorry to tell you that is true. <laughs> um, but our famous puka in sort of modern culture is the puka from Harvey, the movie with Jimmy Stewart. Precisely, he yes. Yes, he's followed around by a six foot white rabbit that no one else can see and um, sort of made to look the fool and embarrasses his sister, although he doesn't seem to mind too much. The character, Elwood P. Dowd, is quite comfortable with his discussions in public with the puka. I think his sister is pretty embarrassed of him. Seemingly, uh, yes. But pukas can take many forms. They don't. Uh, they are often seen in the form of a rabbit. They generally take the form of some kind of more common animal. So a horse or a rabbit are the most common sightings or accounts. A and horse? Then, um, a horse, yes, actually. Okay. And the horse is rather, where a rabbit might sound somewhat innocuous, you know, although a talking, large talking rabbit, maybe not so much. Um, the horse is actually often a black horse with red glowing eyes that um, sort of throws the witness on its back and takes them on these, this sort of terrifying ride across the countryside, mostly unharmed, uh, although, you know, you're scared, so there's some harm that can come from that. Um, and then occasionally you have accounts of pukas taking other forms, including goats or uh, some kind of mule and uh, even occasionally birds. Uh, it just kind of you know, accounts vary from country to country and, or I would say, you know, region to region. And um, also your definition, you know, some people believe that any kind of animal shapeshifter falls into the realm of the puka, while others are more adamant that it is usually a rabbit. Okay. All right. Well, that's not something you hear every day. Um, it's, a lot of <laughs> no, this sounds really ominous. In the sense of, uh, you know, wh where do you draw the line between... Do we have Lori with us? I'm here. Ah, there oh, we go. Sure. Okay, good. We, we've hey. accomplished that. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the show. We gave you an hey, introduction sorry, that, you, did, what, what that you didn't hear. I don't know what happened that glitch. Yeah, really. Well, life in the 21st Radio century. Radio magic. So uh, we were talking <laughs> with Varla, our guest, and I think that we we're uh, in the middle of, uh, as she was explaining what a puka is... And uh, my uh, next question here, Varla, is what? Um, how do you tell the difference between a, a puka and anything else? I mean, you've described things that, that could uh, be related to the wild hunt uh, in folklore uh, and things that are awfully negative, almost like banshee-like. I mean, what? Well, how do we apply these terms without it being arbitrary, or, or can we? Well, I mean, I think you will find in the folkloric record, um, cross-culturally, a lot of similar sort of creatures that come under different names that um, may fit the definition loosely. And that even applies to, like, banshees. You know, some people have warning ghosts, but technically a banshee, by definition, is um, an Irish sort of fairy-like creature that um, portends, you know, death or, or illness. Now, yes, they can be very ominous, um, although the puka does not exist really to, it's not inherently evil. Um, it does sort of shake you up. It acts more, the puka is more akin to like a trickster animal or oh. uh, that the, the trickster element that you hear it time and time again in different cultures and folklore that kind of exists to shake you out of your patterns, 
wake you up. Um, it's not a coincidence that so many accounts of the puka, it tends to be they prey on the town drunk. I mean, the the whole Harvey scenario is actually based on a lot of the um, early 19th century kind of uh, record of these sort of folk tales of these encounters with pukas. And okay. so you do have, uh, you do have, you know, a little bit more of a trickster element, not necessarily trying to um, cause harm. But okay. I also think just in regards to the ominousness, um, I mean, I think we have this idea that fairies are all good and kind and flitting about the garden and, you know, just sort of these lovely beings. And, and actually our relationship with fairies, in particular in places like Ireland, um the relationship goes back very, very far, and it's very deep, and um, there is a sort of, I don't want to say a dark element, but it is certainly um, a more uh, in-depth kind of experience, and there's a lot more sort of things to fear or, or you know, things to avoid in the, in the night, in the woods. So okay. they are used in that way to kind of, Word, word off danger, I guess. All right. Uh, Lori has a question. And I'm, I apologize, Barla, if you've addressed this prior to when I was able to hear what you were speaking about. But I have read in a lot of fo- folklore that the puka is a fairy that is most feared in Ireland, perhaps because it always comes out after nightfall and, it can, and because it can assume a variety of different forms. So I guess my question is that are pukas... Are fairies pukas, and is a puka a changeling that can take animal or human form? Uh, good question. So a, technically a puka, um, they, they are often feared. Uh, at, by me saying that they're not evil doesn't mean that people aren't afraid of them. They can basically sort of snatch you in the night and, you know, you wake up the next day and you've had this kind of... Uh, horrifying fairy encounter or you just say I don't know I was walking home from the pub and I ended up in a ditch I'm not really sure what happened I'm pretty sure it was a puka Um, a puka kind of falls under the category of fairy so we use the category or I use and in traditional Irish folklore as well you use the category of fairy to encompass many creatures that fall under that umbrella and you know the tricky thing as I'm sure you know when you're studying folklore um, is that, you know, the, a creature that fits the same description will have a very different name in another region or another country. So, um, but pukas specifically uh, have more to do with shape-shifting, often taking animal form. Of course, there are accounts of them taking other things. A puka is a fairy creature, but puka is not the general word for fairies, and a changeling is actually something quite different. Okay. So I guess um, to that end, you know, one of the first things that, you know, happens in a general discussion of whether it's, you know, folklore, history, or philosophy is we define what we're talking about. So what is your definition of a fairy? My definition of a fairy is, is a magical creature that um, sort of straddles the realm between the human realm and the mythical and magical. And fairies in particular can cross over into sort of the human realm and do interact with humans in a way that many other magical creatures do not. Okay, what do you mean by magical? That's another word that might invite uh, this belief. 
Yeah, okay. So I guess magical to me that means that they um, they possess a certain um, ethereal element so that they cannot always be explained, they cannot always be seen, they cannot always be um, captured or, um, you know, used in the way that you want, but that they sort of speak to a an aspect of kind of their relationship with humans that um, is, you know, I mean, some people might think of, uh, you know, their relationship with God or any other kind of religion in a sort of similar way. I use the term magical just sort of as an umbrella term for all of these beings that sort of defy explanation. Okay. Before we leave the subject of pukas, unless one of the other hosts has a question on that, that's kind of a dorky of word. Of all, what, I have a what, question. Oh, sure. Go ahead, Laura. Um, I'm sure, Marla, that you get questioned many times, you know, are fairies real? And have you ever seen fairies? And where do you see them? And I've read something that um, fairies actually exist on something that is called the astral plane, sort of a plane that overlaps and coincides with, with our plane. So what is your opinion of this? And how can you find real fairies? Um, and what is the evidence to support their existence? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think I've heard that also people trying to explain it as like an astral plane or, uh, you know, something kind of coexisting in folklore. It's, you know, often they're considered the underground people or the, um, you know, the, the magical people or the little people or the good folk. And there's a sort of whole, you know, idea that their homes are kind of on the they exist on the other side of what you can see so you look at a rock and they may have this whole um, other view of the rock and, and in fact have that rock as a doorway into you know this sort of whole other world so to me they do exist in the same they, they exist uh, overlapping with us I don't think they have the same relationship with time and space that we have, um, but, you know, I mean, a lot of the evidence, of course, is anecdotal. You have, you know, aeons and aeons of people talking about these encounters. Um, as far as my personal experience, I've had a couple of uh, instances in which I couldn't explain it in a, and sometimes, you know, people might think it's a paranormal experience that you're having, and it's really kind of a fine line between the world of the paranormal and the world of the fairy. I mean, there are many uh, beings even that, in the Banshee is one of them, that kind of cross over that sort of, is it a ghost in the spirit of something or is it its own entity? Um, so I've had, of course, I've had people send me evidence and I've had people, um, you know, write me their own accounts. Um, I personally had an experience that sort of shaped probably my relationship with fairy and folk tales in, in general as a child in which I saw something kind of down by a stream that I could not explain and, you know, I didn't know if it was a leprechaun. I, I really didn't know what it was, but I know that I saw it. And, you know, as a child, I also had several, um, very early on, I had several paranormal experiences where I saw ghosts. And um, so I think you know, there, there's evidence to show, one of, one of the greatest examples is probably the community in, in Finhorn in Scotland in which they made offerings to the elementals and to the fairy spirits in order to create a garden that grows 
and they were met with tremendous success, and that's still a spiritual community that um, exists today, and they, they, you know, could grow these, you know, cabbages the size of boulders and, and all of these kind of amazing things that happen. So I think even to the point where we have little garden gnomes and we have little, you know, spheres in our garden and little magical things that you kind of stick in the ground to help the garden grow, um, I think that speaks to our sort of long-term relationship with nature and, and with fairies. Okay. I don't know if that really answered your question, but I, that's... Yeah, yes, it, it did, and I, and I must say I have my own <laughs> fairy garden in my backyard. Um, have you ever seen a fairy ring? Oh, yes. In fact, as a child, I was cautioned by my mother never to uh, enter into a fairy ring or worst possible scenario would be to fall asleep in a fairy ring. And, of course, I was, you know, like six or seven years old thinking, like, why? Why wouldn't I? And she said, well, you know, because then you'll go into the fairy world, and if you do get into the fairy world, you know, don't eat or drink anything. I mean, she was pretty adamant about it in a way that you might caution a child to not, you know, look both ways before you cross the street. Now, whether that was her sort of just fostering a a childhood full of magic and imagination, or if it was her, you know, staunch belief that that could happen, which I think it actually was, and probably still is, her staunch belief, um, it did kind of, you know give me this little bit of an understanding that fairies, while beautiful and could be very kind to children, um, were not above, you know, uh, kidnapping. <laughs> hmm. A couple of felonies there. Well, to, to what end? Was there was there ever a reason given? By my mother or by, by why a fairy might take you? No, uh, well, both. <laughs> Oh yeah, well my mom said because you'll end up in the fairy in the fairy realm and then you don't really have any sense of time and you'll be gone for 50 years and to you it'll seem like a week of partying and drinking with the fairies and you'll come back and it'll be, you know, everyone will be old and you know, it'll be a Rip Van Winkle kind of situation. So this and sounds I like... Found some, now I'm saying it sounds like the general theory of relativity. Yeah, I mean, it there does. are <laughs> a lot... Of, there, there are actual, actually a lot of... Um, kind of overlaps with some of the terms that we use today that we've come to understand scientifically that can be related to a lot of the early folklore and the understanding. But um, also to the to the point that, um, you know, why would a... I mean, actually I get asked quite frequently what the fairies get out of it. What, why would they, you know, um, just going back to changelings very briefly, changelings are actually a a fairy creature that has been switched in place of a human baby. And so people will often say, like, why, why, why would a fairy want a human baby? And what they'll do is, you know, they'll bring, and it's not always a baby. Sometimes it's an older adult or it's a, um, it can be, you know, a person who sort of willingly goes, but most of the time the fairies don't really uh, take a person who very willingly, you know, goes into the fairy realm. Um, But the idea is that this child is, is taken and is raised with the fairies, and, um, you know, they're able to kind of, like, marry the fairy realm and the human realm. Uh, perhaps it gives them some sort of sustainability and an understanding into the mortal world, and conversely, the fairy is, you know, raised in this human environment and never quite 
never quite fits in. And it actually sounds a lot like some of the alien abduction stories that you might hear of the idea that, you know, someone's watching us and they're sort of like taking samples. That whole kind of concept actually you can see in some of those early changeling stories, which is why it's one of the more frightening aspects of the fairy kingdom. Yeah, the whole thing... um, uh matching the uh, understanding of the time. Uh, Lori's got some comments. Yeah, actually, it's not a question. It's just a comment. Now, I work with individuals with disabilities and with autism, and I remember when I first went into the field, I'm um, a behavior analyst, that we were told that often um, the the theme of the swap child, which I, I believe is similar to a changeling child, was common in medieval literature, and it reflected concerns over infants or children that might thought that were thought to be afflicted with diseases or disorders or, dis- or other developmental disabilities, so they would swap the um, the child with a disability with a um, with another child, and that was kind of a, a theme of the, the changeling child as well. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. Actually, uh, to that point, um, and as I you know was sort of putting the book together, you you find so many connections between history and folklore, and you do sort of have to, you know, take the folklore account with a, with a grain of salt, and just as, you know, people thought witches were the ones that caused some sort of disease that wiped out crops, often people who had developmental disabilities that, you know, early people didn't really know what to do with were, were considered, fair, you know, fairy creatures or changeling creatures, and we know today now we understand that it was just a one of those ways of looking at people with developmental disabilities that we've evolved beyond. So I definitely think with changeling babies, when you hear some of the or read some of the stories of a child who, you know, has a, a slightly larger head and grows larger than the parents and, you know, just sort of these like characteristics you you can kind of take that with a with a understanding that we know so much more now about people with disabilities and and the sort of persecution and um, bias that's still present, of course, but that, you know, back in times when, you know, people really didn't have other means of communication, they would explain away these sort of illnesses and diseases with um, folklore. Okay, and it's yeah. interesting, they still... They still do, to a matter of fact. You and they look still, at all the different absolutely, they still do, absolutely. Hmm. All right, thank you for your comments. Okay, very good. Ben, any comments? Well, uh, well, actually, I was, I mean, you know, it sort of delves into the, the idea of changelings. We were going we to ask about that, but, I mean, you sort of answered the question before we even got to it, which kudos to you yeah. uh, for that. because are um, very psychic <laughs> today, Varla. Yeah. Yes. So... <laughs> So how often do you do you see um, folklore reflecting beliefs of the time versus concrete, you know, existence of mythical creatures? Uh, you know, I, I find that impossible to separate for the most part. Uh, you have, but I, I do also want to point out something, and that is that, you know, we as a Western culture have spent a lot of time trying to unexplain things that we consider myth. You see this constantly with the attitude toward Native Americans and that the, that a myth by our kind of societal, cultural understanding is a lie. And in certain cultures, it's not viewed that way at all, that a myth is a story and that that story is just as instrumental to 
the fabric and the fiber of that culture as, you know, what kind of food they ate and, you know, what kind of uh, clothes we wear. So sometimes I, you know, it's a, it's a fine line because it's difficult to say, well, this is real and this isn't because I didn't experience it or because I have a different worldview. And in addition to that, you have a great deal of the written record, and this applies to, you know, lots and lots of cultures, but in, in particular we're talking about the um, folkloric record of, like, Ireland and Scotland. You have a lot of that... Um, oral tradition recorded during the Victorian era and that is what we have uh, on record today to draw from and much of that was very um, I mean I guess like in anthropology you'd use the term ethnocentric you have people who really didn't believe the stories writing them down and therefore tinging them with their own bias and you even see that in the record of it bless his soul, William Butler Yates. You can see he originally called his collection, um, I'm certainly not calling him to task. I'm a great admirer, but he, his original collection was called Fairy and Folk Tales of the Irish Peasantry. And it does sort of reflect the idea that these were the poor people that had these sort of folkloric stories that weren't real and that we were doing them a favor by writing them down and then sitting around the campfire trying to scare our children with them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're coming up on our break. Uh, I did want to make a comment on what you just said, but we'll do that after the break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and our guest host, Lori Greer, today, and our guest, Varla Ventura, on the subject of fairies, pukas, and changelings. And uh, we're broadcasting, of course, WON 1240 on uh, the beautiful Blackstone River Valley here in New England, broadcasting for the 70th year. And we'll be right back. Hi, this is Joe Callahan, host of Coffee Ann, the longest-running panel discussion show in American radio. You never know what topic will pop up on Coffee Ann. So join us weekday mornings 8 to 9 on ON 1240 WON Woonsocket Radio. And welcome back. Uh, we have a number of charities on the show that we have adopted, and we'll mention those during our announcement period. But for now, let's get right back to our discussion with Varla Ventura on the subject of fairies, pukas, and changelings. Strange subject. I just wanted to make the point, Varla, that uh, Ben and I, particularly in our last, uh, second to last book uh, published last year, make the point that that I think you would agree with from your last statement that Folklore and myth, far from being not real, are the, are the vessels of the memory of the human race. Uh, our ancestors were not stupid. Had they been stupid, they would never would have survived. All right, that's a simple principle of evolution. So that's just the point I wanted to make, that uh, these things happen for reasons. Any student of folklore will tell you that there is a grain of truth in every legend, story, even joke that comes down to us from, from the uh, remote past. Uh, because um, simply because it's based on something that that really did occur, no matter how much baggage it's picked up. So uh, th- that's my two cents on that. And uh, so we have some listener questions uh, that we would like to um, ask Varla and Ben if you would do the honors, please. I shall do the honors. So this is from um, Anna in Murrayville, North Carolina. 
Paul and Ben, I loved your new book, and I enjoyed the chapters on humanoids. My question for Varla is this. Uh, does she consider fairies and little people to be physical humanoids, or are they more spiritual? That's a good question. Um, before I comment on that, I just want to say that was a beautiful, a very poetic and eloquent statement that you made. <laughs> well, I really love the way you put that. Oh, gorgeous. thank you. It was Mark Twain uh, said they can live six months on one good compliment. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'll, I'll give you a year. Uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> ben and I will split it. Six okay. months each. So personally, I do not consider them really like ethereal sort of invisible beings, although I do think that they often, it's like they're faster than us. I, I actually think of them as pretty physical with the ability to go into other realms or disappear, not necessarily because, and this might sound really out there, but not necessarily because they have this ability to put, you know, invisibility potion on themselves, although perhaps they do. Uh, more because they have a different relationship with time, and so they can sort of out outwit us in that way. Because there are so many stories of direct physical encounters catching a leprechaun and physically holding it. It's not a, a, an ethereal being. If it was ethereal, it would just sort of dissipate before your very eyes, like a you know, like a ghost or something you know, kind of more of that paranormal realm. This is something much more tangible, but I do think that they have a very unique relationship with time and with space. That's why you hear of, you know, the fairy queen at 672 years old or things like that. She hung in there, huh? Their their relationship is um, with time and with kind of like, you know, just even the speed of light is very different, which is why you so often see these things out of the corner of your eye. So to speak. Okay. Well, that reminds me of, um, I believe, the movie Pan's Labyrinth, whoever here has seen it. Um, they sort of, I, I can't remember, it might have been this movie, but I, it was a movie by Guillermo del, Toro, Guillermo del Toro about a little girl whose father is um, a general in the Spanish army well, during the Spanish Civil Spanish War. Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. Yeah, yeah, and... Um, and essentially, um, I don't, I'm pretty sure they never, they never did the dialogue in English. It was all, all in Spanish, but you could read it in subtitles. And I remember one of the characters mentioning something to the, the effect of, well, fairies, they move, they move a lot faster, so you, in order to see them, you have to slow them down or something like that. And it was a very whimsical and uh, surreal movie, in my opinion, and I, I feel like that captured the nature of, of fairies in a way that, that you said, uh, uh, Varla, if if you know the movie I'm talking about. Oh, I do. I love that movie. And the most terrifying part of it is the way when she's in that labyrinth, the way the things are kind of, you know, sort of moving around the labyrinth, but you can't quite until she has that encounter. And uh, but Pan is another creature that we are all quite familiar with, and and. Um, you know, we know about uh, Pan and the kind of the relationship to, to the goat god. There's a lot of, um, uh, of, of relationship on record with, you know, early pagan times and worshipping goats, which makes perfect sense because that was a way that you were able to survive and, you know, it was a very sacred uh, animal. You also have instances of people donning... Uh, skins and doing these kind of wild dances, and so you have Pan, you have um, that kind of relationship to Puck, and because Pan is often associated with goats, 
I I don't quite put that under the um, hookah realm, but you can kind of see that uh, the trickster element of that sort of uh, creature kind of uh, not really causing harm, but sort of causing some pandemonium. Uh, definitely mischievous. Okay, that was a clever clever word there, pandemonium. Yeah, I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lori, do you have any uh, comment on uh, Anna's question? No, I, I don't. Why don't you, um, I will have some questions after, so why don't you get through the rest of the email? Okay. Well, uh, I think actually we'll, uh, we, we can always deal with, with the listener questions later. Uh, Lori, go, go right ahead and ask your questions. Well, my, my question was, um, you know, recently the idea of these fairy gardens, it seems like it's popping up all over uh, the United States where originally I think they were um, the idea of fairies and fairy gardens and such were relegated to, to Europe and uh, Eastern Europe. So what is the, the fascination all of a sudden why, um, I mean, you go to the stores and you see all these um, little statues and figures to create your own fairy garden. How did this come to be so uh, popular in the United States? That's a great question and an excellent observation. I have observed the same thing. You know, it, you kind of can see the trend moving. So I think we had sort of our big witchcraft boom, just in terms of culture. We sort of had our big witchcraft boom. We had, you know, Harry Potter, and we had sort of, you know, all of the dissemination and normalization of those aspects into um, our regular, you know, everyday lives. And to where, you know, someone might say muggle in conversation. And even if you haven't read the books or seen the movies, you kind of know what that means. And so, and I think that, you know, you, you have different sort of ebbs and flows with these kind of creatures in, you know, you have your vampire crazes that come and go and <laughs> werewolves rise to popularity. With fairies, I think it does speak to something that is happening, that I've observed happening um, in my work with, you know, being around children or, you know, kind of asking the opinion of young people, I, I think it speaks to the relationship that children today, and by children I mean, you know, the new generation, children under the age of 18, that their relationship with magic and the imaginary and the other realm is very different than perhaps even I mean, I was fortunate that I was raised by, you know, sort of this wild, witchy woman that fostered this kind of thing. But many of us were, you know, raised in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, the closest thing we got to magic was a unicorn. So that our generation now is having children. And these children and their, you know, their parents and their grandparents have a different perspective on childhood and imagination and um, what is good for children to pretend and play instead of saying, no, that's just not real, you foster that kind of pretend play. When I mean, we see evidence, I don't have to tell you this, you're a behavioral scientist, you see evidence of the, the beauty and the value of pretend play for children. And so I think that because there's that cultural shift in general, now you see this acceptance of, you know, a magical world that exists within our own and that we want to invite and we want to have a kind of relationship with, whether it's just that, like, tiny little thing in the back of your mind that just says, well, just in case there are fairies, I'm going to put this little door and leave this magical little note. It's sort of a, you know, well, maybe just, just it might be possible. And I think it's just kind of that idea that, you know, anything, these kind of things are possible and there's this, relationship with magic and whimsy and 
the other realm that, um, you know, the children of this new generation are very comfortable with. And so when you have sort of that cultural shift, then you start eventually, because we are the United States, you start seeing the products that follow it. So I think the shift had happened, and then, you know, these things are a result of um, just sort of getting back. And it, it can even play into just children being more aware of nature and the natural world. But it doesn't sound like it's entirely full of whimsy, though. Oh, sorry, Lori. <laughs> well, my book is not for children, I'll tell you that. I would recommend you're at least 15 before you read my book. <laughs> well, uh, Lori and I are... Uh, can I interject just really quickly? Sure. I remember growing growing up in the 60s as a as a young girl that we would pick daisies and we would create these daisy chains to wear around our neck and supposedly the reason you create them was to keep you protected from the elves and the fairies and all their mischief so do do um do girls still do that these days i think so i mean i've seen i showed my son how to make a daisy chain so i don't know i, I don't know you know the girls around you but i remember my older sister showing me that and I do think that you'll find um, throughout the different generations there there are these sort of, you know, resistors to the norm that say that these things aren't real and have kind of continued to foster the relationship with folklore and with fairies over the years. I just think there's a big trend toward it now because it's more acceptable to um, to believe those things. You're not, you're not going to be... Now... You might, at a dinner party, if you sat there and said, oh, absolutely, fairies are real, someone still might, you know, think you're crazy. And I get called crazy all the time for, for arguing that mermaids are real because people who believe in ghosts and even werewolves and vampires will not accept that mermaids are real. So I, I, I get that there's always an exception, but I do think there's a general cultural shift toward sort of embracing these things. At least I hope so. <laughs> okay. Uh, let, let's just take a moment here, uh, Violet, to, to give you a chance, because we're burning up this hour or something fierce, give you a chance to talk about your books, your website, where people can find out more about you. Thank you. That's very kind. Uh, so my website is varlaventura.net. That's just my name.net. And um, you can also find me on Facebook under my name. All of my books are available anywhere books are sold. They are all in print. I have the Book of the Bazaar, Beyond Bazaar. The most recent is Fairies, Pukas, and Changelings. I also have a book on Banshees, Vampires, and Werewolves, and one on Mermaids. And forthcoming in the fall or, or late summer of next year, I have a book all on uh, paranormal topics. So the history of paranormal parlor games, the relationship with uh, women and the Ouija board, and uh, lots of haunted experiences, places, all kinds of good stuff like that. Yeah, good so stuff indeed. Some teasers. Yeah, <laughs> some teasers on my website for that as it gets closer to publication date. And I certainly welcome reader comments and uh, questions, of course. You can just contact me through Facebook. Okay. Do you have any events coming up um, anywhere? I have a few uh, interviews coming up, and I don't actually have any uh, physical, well, I don't have any confirmed physical appearances. There is a strong uh, 
there's, there are a couple things in mid-October, but I haven't got confirmation, so I don't want to advertise those yet. Uh, and I should actually be launching a podcast called Bar Love and Tourist Tales of the Strange with my co-host Bo Llewellyn, and we will be launching that, uh, you know, hopefully by October 1st, and that will be all manner of strange stories and interviews with odd fellows and um, great kind okay. of creepy halloween stuff. All right, very good. Uh, <laughs> Laurie, do you have any uh, further questions right now? Comments or Is whatever? Is that a silly question to ask? Well, the only silly question is the one that isn't asked, so go right ahead. Okay, this isn't just um, in response to what Barla was um, talking about in regards to her books, and in one of the books I read that um, you celebrate Halloween every day. Do you really celebrate Halloween every day? And oh, sure, I really love Halloween. Halloween. Tim Burton's in there somewhere. I love Halloween, too. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm that person that, you know, the day after Halloween starts thinking, what can we do next year to do this better? You know, what should we be? And, and, and how, you know, can we throw a party? Or what, what, what's going to be the, how should we carve the pumpkin? So I, I love all that kind of stuff, and I love thinking about it months in advance. It gives me great pleasure. <laughs> Very good. Uh, okay, well, if, there, if there's nothing further from uh, that direction, uh, why don't we take one more question from one of the listeners there, Ben? Well, now, we have a couple listener questions left over. So let's start with Kurt from Webster, Massachusetts. Uh, he writes to us, uh, My grandmother was Irish, and she used to tell me uh, fairy tales. Uh, all her life, she insisted that fairies are real, uh, but she said some are good and some are bad. My question is, good or bad for whom? People? Uh, if they do exist, uh, maybe we should just stay out of their way. What does Varla think? That's funny. Uh, great question, good or bad for whom? It depends on your perspective. I think she's probably speaking in terms of them being, you know, bad for humans. In other words, everything in your cupboard will be upended and all your milk will spoil <laughs> and you will have, you know done something very, uh, every, everything you thought you were doing right, you will have done wrong with no explanation. Um, however, we also have this relationship with the fairies and people in, in Ireland, they talk all the time about the second sight, and those are people that are gifted, the, the ability to see fairies, but also to be psychic, to have paranormal uh, abilities and, and able to, you know, commune with the afterlife. And so that's actually, a, you know, viewed as a gift. Uh, I think even if we tried to stake completely out of their way, fairies would not leave us alone. So our best bet is a, you know, a solid line of defense through knowledge and, um, and an, an understanding of, you know, what you can do to kind of foster that relationship in a positive way. I mean, you can certainly stay, stay out of their way, and many people can and have for most of their lives, and you can say the same thing of, you know, sort of a, a Encounter, you know, a paranormal encounter or having a uh, paranormal experience. Many people go their whole lives without having one, and um, other people are, you know, repeatedly haunted. So even if you tried to stay out of their way, I don't know that you would succeed. In fact, they might like you more. <laughs> All right, Ben, uh, Laurie, any qu any uh, further comments? Well, I mean, I, I um, guess. I'm... Oh, sorry, Laurie. No, go ahead, Ben. Well, I suppose the 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 path less traveled is sometimes the path that you should not travel down. Well, that's a, that's a profound <laughs> thought there, Ben. I'll try my best. Uh, go ahead, Laura. 
So I was just saying that I've enjoyed enjoyed all of the, the stories and all of the, the information from Barla, and I think all, all my questions have been answered. I just have to read more of the book. Well, not all of us can say that all our questions have been answered, but that that's pretty good. Then we have another question from a listener. We do. This is from Emily from Question Mark, and Emily writes to us, Paul and Ben are always saying that nothing in the paranormal is uh, what it looks like and is and not to trust it. I truly believe I saw fairies in our woods when I was five years old. What is Varla's advice on what to do if we meet fairies? I suppose it depends on the fairy creature that you meet. Uh, you know, if you see something in your garden, then I would recommend leaving them a little something that they would like. If you think you see something in your house, same thing. Leave them a nice glass of wine or a fine cake, some sort of offering. Uh, if you encounter something in the woods, my recommendation would be to go the other way in a very quick, you know, at a very quick pace. Um, and, you know, it, it all sort of depends on, like, what you are actually encountering. A lot of the very, very terrifying fairy creatures can also be related to the idea that, for example, these horrible beings that live in the bog, that just their whole goal in life is to reach their long, grandly arms out and pull your children down into the mire below. Now, those while they may well be true, and I'm certainly not going to take the chance, um, you know, you also have the idea that you're kind of, hey, kids, don't play in the bog. It's not safe. You could drown. Maybe it's Peg Powler that's going to drown you. Maybe it's just the fact that you, you'll sink in and you won't be able to get back out. So my advice would be that, you know, if you do encounter something, you know, don't necessarily fear it. Uh, try not to provoke it. <laughs> and... Um, Maybe just try and see what kind of message you have you're, you're going to receive from them. Okay. Uh, comments from our colleagues here? Hmm. All right. Well, well, perhaps I can point out two, <laughs> two different stories that are in our latest book, Ben, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Two Mo- Bigfoot Mothman and Monsters You Never Heard Of, that might be interpreted as fairies. Uh, Raleigh, are, are you familiar with the term Pukwudgie? Yes, I am. Okay. Well, we uh, happen to live here in uh, eastern New England where we are neighbors to the uh, much-celebrated Bridgewater Triangle, so-called. And we actually got some photographs there that are, that are in the book. That uh, we, And we, we make no claims. I mean, it could be anything. could be pareidolia. could be nothing. But, um, you know, we have a lot of training in the, this realm, and it looks to us like there's something weird there. They look like small human figures. And within 50 feet, where, where we took that picture in 2010, a man said that he was walking his dog in 2015, and uh, the dog, whose name was Bingo, suddenly drew his attention to a very small figure about two feet high standing on the, the edge of the dirt road right at where the woods begin. And the figure was just, was gesturing for him to follow him into the woods. And, of course, the dog was having none of this, and the man thought retreat was the better part of valor, and, and he never went back to that spot. <laughs> he said this little figure had sort of a sneer on his face, uh, but was uh, very anxious for him to follow him. So these are the kinds of stories we receive from these areas. Uh, the natives, have the, the, who are the Wampanoag people, they have their own traditions of these things. And uh, I myself ran into fairies, uh, supposedly, in Puerto Rico in 1984, a uh, family that said that they uh, would leave beer and fruit out, something that doesn't sound too appetizing to me, but the, the 
fairies would come. They would take a walk, the family. And uh, one was a banker and a real estate agent, so these weren't bumpkins. They would take a walk for an hour on Saturday mornings, and the fairies would clean their house for them. Even the breakfast dishes would be done. So I said, that's a pretty good deal. Where do you find these people? So uh, I set up cameras, uh, which actually belonged to the U.S. Coast Guard. I should never suppose I shouldn't have done that. And we, uh, nothing happened. There was there was no uh, activity in the kitchen whatsoever. And uh, they blamed me for the house not being cleaned. I thought I'd have to spend the day cleaning the house. <laughs> but uh, the question is, gee, Paul, why did you believe that? Well, the kid, these were very, very credible, professional people. Uh, there were three kids. All five of them insisted they had seen. Uh, at least orbs or, or fairy-like creatures outside the window and in the kitchen and all this. And uh, I had no reason to disbelieve it, uh, although I thought perhaps we're dealing with some sort of perhaps undiscovered science here. I, I don't know. So uh, th- th- those are just observations from our limited experience with the uh, fairy folk, if you will. Uh, so I think that uh, we're, um, I think we probably will have time for for maybe one more question here before we end uh, the hour. Uh, could you t- say a little more about um, the, I noticed in the, ter- the the title of your most recent book, Varla, uh, there is the word wild. We can, we get that. There's also the term wicked. And you have explained a bit about that during the show uh, based on our questions. But if you could say a little more about how do you tell these experiences, wild versus wicked, I mean, just, you know, positive versus negative. I mean, could some of these things be parasitical entities, such as Ben and I often talk about, uh, that uh, will take the form of something positive in order to prey upon your, at best, your uh, negative emotions? I mean, is, what say you on that? Well, you say wild like it's a bad thing, or wicked like it's a bad thing. No, well, wild, wild can be good. Wild can be good. We all know that. I think that... I think I, uh, when when we say wicked, I think perhaps some of us think of it, you know, we might think associate that word with evil or negative, certainly. To me, wicked has a little bit more of a mischief and a little bit more of um, sort of trickster element to it. And that being said, there are accounts, uh, uh, in particular in Japan and the Japanese stories of goblins that are nothing but horrifying, and uh, essentially it's this goblin that just eats passerbys on, on the road and oh appears in this form of this beautiful, you know, or beautiful woman or perhaps a little old lady who seems perfectly harmless. Uh, and and that's, that's a common a common thread. You have uh, fancies sometimes seen as that, a little old lady walking down the road. You go to help her with her basket, and she turns to you and turns into this sort of, fierce-looking, terrifying, uh, you know, entity that scares you, and then you realize, oh, I've just seen a banshee. I'm in great trouble. Someone in my family okay. is in... Viola, I hate to interrupt, but we're pretty much out of time. Uh, give us your website okay. more and one more time, if you would, please. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I'm sorry to um, blather on there, but if anybody wants to know more, you can find me at barlaventura.net. And uh, my email address is the same. It's varlaventura at gmail. If you have further questions or you um, would like to continue the discussion offline. Outstanding. Thank you so much. We'll talk again. Indeed. Okay. Folks, let's get to our announcements. Uh, our newest new book, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of, is available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle. And we will have copies available for sale at all of our forthcoming events. 
And oh. if you can't get to one of Paul and Ben's events and would still like an autographed copy of any of their books, you can get them at our show's online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. And our 2016 book, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is in most bookstores, and if they don't have it, they can get it. It's also available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and other online retailers. And again, you can uh, get any autographed copy at BehindTheParanormal.com. Now, our next event will be Labor Day weekend, September 3rd and 4th, at the Exeter UFO Festival in New Hampshire, a great annual event that benefits local children's charities. It's loads of fun. All the merchants get into the act. The subject of our talk on Saturday will be flap areas, UFOs, and the paranormal on steroids. On Sunday, for the second year in a row, we'll broadcast this show live from the Exeter Town Hall with the audience and a panel of the speakers, including Richard Dolan, Travis Walton of Fire in the Sky fame, the great Kathleen Martin, Denise Stoner, Peter Robbins, Stephen Mather Lees, Carolyn LaRock, and our good friends from Seacoast Saucers of New England. Tickets are $20 for both days. The Meet the Speakers event on Saturday night is an extra $10. And find out more at ExeterUFOFestival.org. And on Saturday, September 3rd, or sorry, 30th, I should say, uh, we'll talk about the strange connections, UFOs, cryptids, and ghosts in western Connecticut and beyond at the Brandywine Living Center in Litchfield, Connecticut, heart of the Litchfield Triangle. And you can RSVP to Nanette at 860-567-9500. On October 6th and 7th, we'll be back at the Greater New England UFO Conference at City Hall in Lemonster, Massachusetts, one of our favorite events of the year. Our subject there will be The Fur Flies, Bigfoot, and UFOs. In the following week, October 14th, Paul and Ben will speak at the Western Connecticut UFO Conference at the Danbury Connecticut Library, along with Linda Zimmerman, Rosemary Ellen Riley, Shane Stara, and other legendary researchers. And one week later, October 21st, Paul will be back at the Danbury Library, this time with author Bill Hall, for a program about Bill's 2014 book, The World's Most Haunted House, about the famous Bridgeport Poltergeist case of 1974. Paul is one of the few surviving eyewitnesses. We should just move to Danbury, honestly. Well, yeah, so on, sa- so. <laughs> on Saturday, October 28th, uh, at 1 p.m., uh, we'll speak at the uh, po- Portsmouth Public Library in New Hampshire. Uh, the subject is, what's really behind the paranormal in New Hampshire and beyond? And don't and, forget uh, the YouTube channel. Oh yeah, do not forget about our YouTube channel. We're going to be working on some more productions very soon, but you can check that out. Behind the Paranormal Case Files. And uh, meanwhile, find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, public appearances and all that, at the BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll find over 720 free recorded shows from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Okay, so um, what do we have... Uh, Next week there. Oh, no, actually, we, we still have, we still have like a minute. Yeah, let, let's so. do one more thing here. Uh, you can find a, a little more shameless self-promotion here. My other books on Amazon.com, Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, Nook, etc. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, uh, we, in the case of the latest book, will sign them for you. And uh, you will help us keep all those recorded shows free. Also on our website, you'll find direct links to several charities Ben and I have adopted, including USACares.org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, doing great stuff out there for at-risk youth, and HelpForHaiti.com. So what do we got next week, Ben? Uh, next Sunday, August 13th, we will welcome back legendary uh, physicist uh, Dr. Amit Gatswami to tell us about how quantum science explains everything. I'm excited to, ho- to ask excellent clients 
excellent question. Yeah. Hopefully get excellent answers. Yeah, that's what he said. We leave you this afternoon with a pregnant thought from, of all people, 20th century artist Pablo Picasso. Everything you can imagine is real. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And I'm Lori Greer. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we'll see you behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.